0: Hello, and thanks so much for joining us here for episode 256 with Mark Murphy. I think you will find this a particularly valuable conversation because Mark is bringing some science-based insights on what it takes to deliver tough truths at work in a way that's going to work. It's going to create a real difference instead of just uh, hostilities all around. So you'll learn, one, the top reasons why people don't tell the truth at work, two, common phrases that create defensiveness, and three, Why having a difficult conversation is better than just fixing the problem yourself. So if you'd like to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items that we've referenced here, it's on over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash F256. And now here is Mark's story. Mark Murphy is a New York Times bestselling author, weekly contributor to Forbes, ranked as a top 30 leadership guru and the founder of Leadership IQ. He's trained leaders at the United Nations, Harvard Business School, the Clinton Foundation, Microsoft, MasterCard. Shuram, and hundreds more organizations. He's written several award-winning books on leadership and has been featured in numerous premier media outlets. Here is Mark. Mark, thanks so much for joining us here on the How To Be Awesome At Your Job podcast. Well, Pete, thanks so
1: much for having me. I'm
0: excited. Oh yeah, well, I am intrigued by so much of what you have to say here, so I think this will be a great one. And uh, I wanted to start, though, I learned a bit about you that uh, you once addressed the United Nations. What's that story?
1: Well, yeah, that was a pretty cool experience. So for several years, I was uh, a faculty at the UN. They essentially developed an academy to develop leaders within the UN. And so their focus is on really teaching all the people that are working in diplomacy, how to, A, lead more effectively, but B, how to communicate, how to be diplomatic, how to deal with difficult conversations, tough situations. And it was uh part of a program that they had put together to really develop the leaders within the United Nations. And so it's a pretty exceptional program they had going and they would bring in experts like myself to come in and talk about particular aspects. So I talked to them about different kinds of tough conversations and why people resist tough messages. And you can imagine, given the kinds of situations we face across the globe, that Yeah, the United Nations has a little bit of experience in dealing with tough conversations. (laughs) Well, that's
0: awesome. Yeah. Well, I was a a loyal model United Nations secretary general when I was in college. So I keep a little bit of an eye as to what's going on with the real one. (laughs) And so I guess now I'm thinking if you are teaching diplomats how to be more diplomatic, Well, you must be quite a master of diplomacy yourself.
1: Well, you know, one of the things I have discovered is that it's not always perfect, right? It's uh, (laughs) we can go into conversations with the best of intentions. And that's part of of handling tough conversations and difficult situations is a knowing what to do, but then b making sure that you have some be reminders in place that you can pull on at any moment, because the reality is that most difficult conversations don't take place on your schedule. Most of the time when they happen, you get blindsided. And that's why it's so important, no matter how sophisticated your methods are, to have something that you can fall back on quickly. And that's really one of the essential lessons is distill it down, Get something you can fall back on because that difficult conversation is not going to come most of the time when you're fresh and you've just had a nice cup of coffee. It's usually going to come at the end of a long day when you're wiped out and this is the last conversation you want to have.
0: Understood. Okay, cool. Well, well, I'm excited to dig into some of these. And it's so funny when we talk about diplomacy and difficult conversations, I have this weirdest a temptation just to be super rude to you to see how you'll respond but i've got to reel it in because that's not how i am it's just a, a kind of a silly cartoon like fantasy uh for my amusement which i'm gonna to put to the side for now you jerk <laughs> okay that's it that's it okay so then now you lay out some of these uh, things to fall back on in your book, A Truth at Work. So tell us what's that about and of and what's the alternative? Are we all just lying at work?
1: So one of the things that I found in doing research for this and some of my own studies is that it's not so much that we lie in that we walk in every day and are telling blatant falsehoods, but rather we're avoiding telling the truth. When I ask leaders or employees, you know, do you avoid having difficult conversations with people? And somewhere between 8 out of 10 or 9 out of 10, depending on who you ask, of people say, yeah, I, I avoid telling my boss tough things. I avoid telling my colleagues tough things. I avoid telling my employees because I'm just afraid of how they're going to react. And that's the real reason we avoid difficult conversations. Is it, It's not so much that we're afraid of letting the words come out of our mouth. Rather, we're afraid what's going to happen when this person hears what it is we have to say. And that's the coming up with techniques for mitigating some of those bad reactions and calming people down and creating conversations rather than confrontations is ultimately what we're after in this. And that's really what the book is about, how to tone down some of those negative reactions and deliver messages that would otherwise be tough to hear in a way that the recipient will actually engage with you and talk to you about this stuff.
0: Okay, cool. Well, so I want to dig into these tactics and your great acronyms and such uh, to those ends. But first, I'm thinking, when it comes to that fear, we're concerned about how the other person's going to react and, and, and what will become of it. I'd love if we could sort of uh, take a bullseye aim at that one right up front. I'd say when it comes to the fear, what are some perspectives that uh, folks should bear in mind in terms of of managing that uh, right before we even begin to say a word? So
1: there's a number of things. So one of the things we discovered is that there are these things we call truth killers. And they're, they're really the reasons why people resist the truth. And there are four big ones that we really identified in this. And, and listen, there's a thousand reasons why people won't listen to tough messages. But if you kind of clump them all together, the big four, number one, there's what I call confident unawareness. Sometimes it's known as the Dunning-Kruger effect. And what this means is essentially people think they're right. They think they know what they're doing. They think they know what they're talking about. But in reality, they're absolutely clueless. So I think about it like this. If, if I grew up on an island with no other humans around me, I might think that I'm a fast runner. I might run across the beach on this little deserted desert island and think, "Wow, I'm really fast because I've never seen another fast runner." But that's not my life and I'm married to a woman who is a significantly better runner than me. I'm incredibly slow. And so I watch her run and now I don't have confident unawareness. I watch her run and I say, "Oh, yeah, that's what fast looks like. Oh, I'm I'm really slow." But there are lots of people walking around the planet who think that they're really fast, or think that they're really smart, or think that they have high emotional intelligence. And if you've ever seen somebody that talks with great confidence that they know exactly what they're doing, and in reality, they're an idiot, that would be confident unawareness. And that's a tough one to overcome. And Sometimes, when you give somebody feedback, you're like, listen, you're not doing such a great job with our customers over there. You're not doing such a great job advancing your career. They're like, I'm awesome. I'm fantastic. Well, okay. That's a tough one to overcome. Another reason that people resist hearing tough messages is what we call psychological resistance. And this is one of the things that happens. When you have a tough conversation with somebody, whether it's a friend, a spouse, a colleague, a boss, whoever, oftentimes you're telling them something that is at odds with their self-image, with how they view themselves. If you came to me, Pete, and said, you know, Mark, I think you're kind of dumb and I think you're not a very nice person. Well, that's at odds with my self-image. And so I'm likely to turn around and attack you or attack your message. Well, Pete doesn't know what he's talking about. Pete hardly, you know, how does he know that? He didn't hear the last conversation I had before I hopped on the phone with him. What does he know? He's a jerk. I'll bet you he's real nasty in his life. And it's this, whenever somebody tells us something that is at odds with our self-image, it is just by very human nature, it's going to engender a what's either psychological resistance or cognitive dissonance. It causes us to attack the message and the messenger.
0: Okay. Well, that's powerful. So that you zeroed in on it there. It's like, what is it that's likely to trip a wire for an explosion versus not? And I think that's interesting when it comes to the running. It's like, I think folks could criticize any number of things about me. Like, yep, that's right. Yeah. I don't know anything about that. Yeah. You're true, 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 true. And then there are a few things it's like, now hold up right there, sir. It's like, it'll spark a, a different reaction. So I love it when you talked about you have zeroed in on, in fact, seven key phrases that sort of actual scripts or verbiage that create defensiveness within people. So could you lay those out for us in terms of what are some of those phrases that we should not say? And what do we say instead of those? So
1: one of the things that was interesting is that when we talk about having difficult conversations is that Oftentimes, having a tough conversation is as much about listening as it is talking, and a lot of conversations go off the rails before we ever say anything uh, we issue a command or a directive or anything like that it It begins with how we listen or rather don't listen. so a friend of ours comes up and says, "Oh, I'm having such a tough time at work. My boss is such a jerk and i I think there might be layoffs at the company and When they say that, what we're trying to do, if we do it correctly in that moment, is build some empathy, is take their perspective so that we can give them some guidance. We can just listen. We can be empathic. We can do whatever we need to do. But there's seven things that humans generally say to each other that basically tell this other person, nah, I don't really want to help you out here. Okay. So things like, Well, you know, listen, griping about it's not going to make it any better. All right. (laughs) You just need to suck it up. Or one of my favorites. Well, life is unfair. It's just, you know, sometimes just crap happens. It, It just, you know, just bad stuff. Or one that we've been seeing a lot more lately is, well, you know what? Maybe this is a blessing in disguise. Maybe this is all for the best. There's a a reason for everything, and and you don't worry about it. What you just said, all those concerns, they're not important. This is all going to work out just great. And, you know, then there are the classics. So don't worry. You'll get over it. Or, you know, well, you think you've got problems. Let me stop listening to you and tell you about what's going on in my life. Because mine's a lot worse than yours is, and it becomes a competition of you know who's got it worse. And then, of course, there's the classic, "Well, yeah, but." And it's funny because the word "but" gets used constantly. But, but there it is. (laughs) It's it's an absolute conversation killer when it's used in this kind of a scenario in a difficult situation where. Somebody's opening up. They either want a sounding board, they want somebody to listen to them. Maybe they down the road want somebody to give them some guidance. But these are all phrases, and you can come up with a hundred variations on these that people say that just tell whoever you're talking to, I don't want to hear anymore. What you said is stupid. I'm not really paying attention to you. And you know what? I don't want to listen to you. I want to talk. I just want to tell you stuff. And that's a quick way to end any conversation, let alone a difficult one.
0: Oh, yeah, I like that. Okay, so quick graphic, suck it up. Life's not fair, stuff happens. Maybe it's a blessing in disguise. Don't worry, you'll get over it. You think you got problems, well, yeah, but, and and certainly that is the theme. It's like any of these, is sort of like dismissive. Like, okay, well, you know, no need to really hear any more of what you have to say we're moving on. And what it sort of conveys, what you've said is not really consequential or does not really matter to me. I don't take it all that seriously, or it doesn't have much weight or importance to me so that I could see that theme coming clear. And and it's it's funny in my, I think about my, my wife right now, I've said a couple of times and what I thought was reassuring. That's really where my intention was in my heart. It's like, Oh honey, we're going to make it through this just fine. And so, and that, Kind of, she interpreted it in, in that kind of a way, which is, I don't care to talk more about this. I am sort of not proactively encouraging you to tell me more about what you think and feel of with regard to this scenario, as insofar as I'm, I'm trying to kind of move on. And, and I wasn't trying to move on. I just, I really did believe that we were going to get through it just fine. And I thought a show of, confidence and support would would be the thing, but it wasn't the thing uh, in that moment. It
1: happens a lot. And there are kind of two things I think go on with this uh, in a lot, whether it's at home or at work, is that one, we're taught to be solution-oriented. So, well, just solve it. I don't want problem bringers around me. I want problem solvers. So just, just solve it. Just get right to it. And too often what happens is in trying to skip to the solving stage, we basically kill off the empathy stage, which is a problem. The other thing that happens, and this is a fairly recent phenomenon, is that you think about social media and what social media is training us to do. Social media is not encouraging us to respond with additional questions. It does not encourage us to respond with empathy. It basically says whenever somebody shares an issue, What does Facebook want? What does Twitter want? They want reactions. They want you to jump in. And if somebody says they give a little soliloquy, they want you to match that with a soliloquy and they want it emotional and tense and everything else. They, they don't want dialogue because that's calming and that takes longer what they want is quick reactions because that's what gets eyeballs and it's interesting that you know social media is is essentially trained us to respond the exact wrong way to difficult conversations and you know the next time one of your friends posts something you know a little sketchy on facebook and you're tempted to jump in with what I would call reciprocated diatribe, that is, one person makes a speech and you make a speech back. Instead, try just asking a question. Well, tell me more about that. I'm, I'm interested as to how you came to that conclusion. Tell me what data backs that up. I'm just looking for, are there any facts that underlie your assertion here? Something that engages them in more conversation rather than shutting down the debate instantly.
0: That's good. Reciprocated diatribe is a great turn of a phrase. Is this a Mark Murphy original?
1: It's one that I came up with. And then as I was doing research, I discovered that it had actually been coined about 30 years ago. And so I actually
0: can't take ownership.
1: Yeah, no, there were some uh, sociologists actually talking about it about uh, 30 years ago.
0: Yeah. <laughs> well, and those sociologists had no idea the amount of reciprocated diatribe that was to be unleashed in the decades to come.
1: Oh, I, I, yeah, they had no idea what was headed our way.
0: <laughs> okay, cool. Well, so now I'm thinking a little bit now, when you talk about don't do reciprocated diatribe, and you have a couple other Kind of tools or, or techniques. One is called delayering a conversation into multiple parts. Can you you walk us through uh, what's that about? What's the value of doing so, and and
1: how's it done? So this I think is actually probably the most important part of having difficult conversations. So if you think about it, it most conversations have really four components to them. There are four layers to them. There are facts. That's sort of the initial objective reality. Somebody said something or somebody did something. You could videotape it. You could audiotape it. That's, that's a fact. It's verifiable. But that's not what gets us into trouble. What gets us into trouble is that based on that fact, we then make an interpretation. The human brain is very much an interpretation engine. We do not look outside our window and say, my, isn't that interesting? Today, the weather is 39 degrees and 60% cloudy. No, we look outside the window and say, "Ugh, I'm so sick of it being gray. Oh my gosh, it's so cold outside. And we're making a judgment about it. We're interpreting it. The fact is it's 39 degrees Fahrenheit. Our interpretation though is that's cold or that's hot or that's better than I thought or that's worse than I thought. Based on that interpretation, we then have an emotional reaction. I, I'm happy to go outside. I'm disappointed. I'm feeling depressed now because I haven't seen the sun in a few days. And then based on that emotional reaction, we have this desired end. We want something to happen. I want to move to Hawaii. That'll be so much better. And so I think of this as this four part model. I call it the fire model. It's facts, interpretations, reactions, and ends. Now, here's the thing. When we're having a difficult conversation, it is the first step before we do anything else first thing we want to do is strip away anything that is not a fact so let's say for example that one of my colleagues i asked them to work on a part of a report and they bring me the report and i notice there's a couple of typos and a misformatted chart and so if I'm dealing just with the facts, I might look at this and say, hmm, isn't that interesting? There's three typos on the first page and there's a, a chart that's incorrectly formatted. Now, my natural human reaction is to say, is to interpret that and say, you know what? It's like they didn't listen to anything I asked them to do. <laughs> now my emotional reaction is I'm you know, that's just so irritating. Like I, I just I, I can't trust you. And now my desired end is, you know what, I'm not Can I ask you to do anything in the future? I'm just going to avoid you entirely. I'm going to go ask Bob or Sally instead because you clearly can't do this correctly. So (laughs) that's my normal kind of human reaction. So what I want to do is as soon as I feel myself starting to head down that path, what I like to do is literally write a little T on a piece of paper. Just make myself a little grid and make basically four boxes, right? So put an F in one I and an R and an E. And I write down everything I want to say. What I want to say is there's two typos in the memo or three typos in this thing and, and the chart's not formatted. Now, my interpretation is that you didn't listen to anything I asked you to do. My emotional reaction is that I'm irritated and angry and my desired end is I don't want to give you any more work to do. What I'm going to do is after I write this all down and put everything into its respective little box, I then want to draw a big X through the I, the R and the E, because essentially if I go into a conversation and I start out with, you know, Pete, I just have to say, I'm pretty disappointed in the work I got back from you because it's, it's like you, you didn't listen to anything I said. And, and when you don't pay attention to my requests, it makes me feel like you're disrespecting me. And that makes me feel like I don't want to work with you anymore. That's the worst conversation we can have because two things
0: have happened. <laughs> I was hoping that was the bad example. Uh, uh, like, I don't know. He's using a lot of I statements and emotions. So I but I hope this is bad because it feels very bad to me. Good, good, good. We're on the same page. Yeah, exactly. right. Well, and
1: two things, two big things happen. One is we are now going to have a conversation about hurt feelings and judgments and judgments that could easily be wrong. And so we're completely into this ugly, emotional, hard to manage territory. But the other thing that happens is that we're no longer talking about the typos, right? Honestly, all we want to get fixed here is we just want a memo without typos and a good looking chart. That's it. That's, Nothing else we really need to discuss at the moment. And that's the very first thing that I encourage people to think about when they're going into a difficult conversation is before you open your mouth, strip out all of the stuff that is going to cause you problems in this conversation. And that stuff is the interpretations, reactions, and ends. You want to talk about the facts. Those are safe. We can problem solve like grown up adults and without ever having a raised voice if we talk about the facts. But the whole I statement and you're making me feel like this. Oh, If you ever, you know, there's two bad F words in tough conversations. One is the obvious one. But the other bad (laughs) F word is feel. If you're saying the word feel in a difficult conversation, we've probably gotten off track because now we're not talking about Stuff that we can easily fix. Now we're into a deep emotional ripping off some scabs, and that's just not going
0: to help us. Okay, excellent. Thank you. And so now I'm thinking a little bit about okay, the fact, interpretation, reaction, and ends. And I just want to make sure I get this dead on in terms of the distinctions amongst them. So, fact is the thing that happened, you know, we could all agree, we can see this. Interpretation is the meaning I affix to it, like, you are lazy. (laughs) Uh, That reaction is my emotion about it, like, I am enraged at this person, who's ignoring me and then ends is the desired outcome or decision is like, therefore I plan to no longer assign any important work to him. Yes, exactly. Okay, cool. So I got that clear. And so then, all right, noted. So if that's the the wrong way to go in terms of just laying it out there in terms of your feelings and what you think all of this means, what is the model pathway to engage in that conversation? Well,
1: so once we've stripped away all the other stuff and we're left with the facts. So now I want to go talk to you about these three typos, let's say. So I have essentially two approaches. If let's say we've worked together for 20 years and we have a good relationship, I could walk up to you and go, Hey, Pete, two typos. And you'd go, Okay, ah, dang it. All right. All right, ah, right, man. I missed those. Let me go fix those. And that's honestly all we need to do.
0: Okay. Facts alone. That does it. Exactly. It's,
1: it's, they're pretty easy to take. Now that's not always the case, right? It's not always the case. You're having this conversation with a buddy and you can just go up and say the facts and call it a day. So when we need to do a little bit more, we created what's called what we call the idea script. And it's essentially five parts that it takes about 12 seconds to do. And it's uh, essentially a preamble to having a tough conversation. And it goes like this. Step one, just invite them to partner. So basically that means just say, hey, Pete, would you be willing to have a conversation with me about that memo you wrote the other day?
0: That's step one. No, Mark. (laughs) You're not my real dad. (laughs) I don't know. How could you say no? Okay, (laughs)
1: exactly. And that's, that's the thing is, you know, people will say, well, what happens if somebody (laughs) says no? If in once in a blue moon, somebody will, when they say no, you just say, well, uh, you mind if I ask why? And now we're going to get to the heart of why they don't want to talk to us. But most of the time people will, they'll go, okay, fine. And then step two, I'm just going to disarm myself. I'm just going to, you know, throw the guns down, raise my hands and say, listen, I just want to review the situation, make sure I'm on the same page as you. Step three, I'm going to say, and if we have different perspectives, you know, we can talk about those and figure out a plan for moving forward. Step four, I'm going to say, does that sound okay? And then step five, you want to talk now or you want to talk this afternoon? So in essence, what I'm doing is a couple of things. Number one, I'm coming to them in a gentler way. I'm opening the door to talk about whatever these facts are. But what I'm communicating to this person is that I want an honest to goodness conversation. And here's the thing. Most conversations have a mix of statements and questions. Mm -hmm. And so just in this little quick script, Would you be willing to have a conversation with me about that memo you wrote yesterday? I'd just like to review the situation, make sure I'm on the same page as you. And listen, if we have different perspectives, we can talk about those and figure out a plan for moving forward. Does that sound okay? Essentially, I've got two questions, two statements. So I got a good 50-50 mix. And in doing that, what I'm communicating to them is, this is not a me talking to you like you're a child. I'm not coming to yell at you. I'm not looking for a fight because the only way we're ultimately going to solve this is if we come to this as equals and hash this out and both get to some level of agreement about how we're going to move forward and fix this issue. Because if all I do is I say to you, you know, Pete, the memo stunk, fix it. Well, (laughs) you may go fix it, but we're, our relationship, even if it's subtle, is just taken a little bit of a hit because now your buy-in isn't all that high. You're walking away at some level thinking, ah, boy, he's kind of a jerk. You know, it could have said that nicer and, you know, disrespected me a little bit. I've taken away some of your agency. But if instead I come to you, one adult to another, and I say, hey, would you be willing to talk with me about this? Well, now you're going to have to ante up and actually participate in this
0: and that's what I'm after. That's cool. I like it. And so then thinking through the framework again. I was following with okay, we invite. That's the I, we discern or disarm the self, the D. And the last one I guess is schedule, S. But the E and the A, what what are the words you're using for those? So it's
1: invite them to partner, eliminate blame is the E. That's the I just want to review. And then affirming their choices. So that's basically the does that sound okay to you? And again, some of this is incredibly subtle in that I want them, because even if they they begrudgingly say, yeah, OK, I've at least gotten them to say, yeah, OK, <laughs> I've gotten them at some level to agree to participate in this with me. And one of the models I think about is if you have a Let's uh, take a football example. If you have a superstar coach and a superstar quarterback, if the quarterback makes a bad throw, throws an interception, comes over to the sideline, the coach and the quarterback, the coach does not come over to the superstar quarterback and say, hey, you know, that was a really stupid throw. because quarterback's going to go, yeah, I know. I saw it. Well, no, I'm, I mean, I need to make sure you know that was a stupid throw. No, I get it. That was a stupid throw. Instead, what they do is it may be a little terse. But they're going into a conversation of the form. All right, how do we fix this? How do we not do that again? What needs to change? And they're actually having a dialogue because the thing that they've each realized is they can't solve the problem without the other person. The coach cannot win the game without the quarterback, and the quarterback cannot win the game without the coach. And in this case, if we apply this to a work case or a relationship with our spouses, I can't fix this issue if, let's say, you know, one of our kids is doing something. I can't do this without my wife. We have to, even if we have different perspectives on this at first, it's going to take both of us to figure out what to do next. If I have a problem with that memo you wrote, I can't fix the memo without you. And the one of the big kind of aha moments about difficult conversations is that, It's not something you can fix by yelling at people. These are not issues where one person can fix it. It takes both parties to actually have a dialogue come together and hash it out to come up with a workable solution. Otherwise, I'm just yelling at you and that's not going to get us anywhere.
0: Well, and so I want to, to address if any listener has, is challenging that in, in his or her own mind, like, well, I, I could just fix their mistake for them and, and just do it myself. What's your reply to that? You
1: can't. And the problem is you haven't actually resolved the issue. Okay, You've just taken their issue over and put it on yourself. And listen, if you do that, Ultimately, what's going to end up happening is you're going to bear the weight of the world on your shoulders. And that's problem one. Uh, Problem two is that the people around you aren't growing and developing. So imagine if every time your kid has an issue, you jump in and solve it for them. Okay, well, that may get them through this week's problem. But what happens, not to get morbid here, but what happens when you're dead? Now, all of a sudden, we have a kid who is ill equipped to live on their own to go out and survive the world we 've taught them nothing because in the every time this happened, even if it 's an employee, if every time one of my employees has an issue, say, and I jump in and I do that for them i've pretty much guaranteed that they will never grow and develop beyond where they 're at and whether it's my role as a parent or my role as a leader or just in my role as a friend, I haven't helped this person. And so it's not until they own 50% of this issue and partner with me on it, it's not until they do that have I actually given them some real tools to do better out in the world.
0: Okay, understood, appreciated, that makes sense. Uh, You know, we've talked a lot about how to say things But you said a huge part of this game is the listening. So I want to make sure we give a little bit of airtime to that. Tell us about your take on structured listening.
1: So the first part of, of course, structured listening is basically not to say all those things we talked about or suck it up. Life's unfair. (laughs) He says, so that's the what not to do, the what to do, structured listening It's think of it as a step beyond what we were all taught years ago as active listening, and active listening sort of became a a bit of a cliche where you nod your head and go mm hmm and oh yes oh wow mm hmm interesting and you know we grunt a little bit and we furrow our brow and that's supposed to mean we're there, and what we found is that that's just insufficient. So structured listening really involves eliciting so encouraging this person to talk. So saying something to them like, I'd really like to understand your perspective here. Can we just review this and I'd like to learn more so I can get on the same page as you? And so when I talk about Facebook, when one of your friends says something a little bit provocative, going back to them and say, well, I'd like to understand your perspective a bit more. I'm not sure I totally get it. Would you share a little bit more about them? Get them to reveal where their head is at. That's step one of listening. Step two of listening is to actually just listen. Now, one of the things that we have found is when people sit there and they, you know, furrow their brow, that's usually insufficient to make them truly present. And while it is a dying art, honest to goodness, especially and it sounds weird. I know this sounds hokey, but when you're having a tough conversation, even with your spouse, saying something to them like, listen, do you, do you mind if I just jot some notes down? Because I want to make sure I actually get everything you're saying. And what's interesting about this is not only does jotting some notes down, and I, I again I know it sounds weird if you're like talking to your wife about XYZ, like, do you mind if I take some notes? It sounds weird, but it puts you in the moment because when you take notes, it forces you to pay more attention than just sitting there does. The second thing that happens though, is even though it's weird, it communicates to the other person. I honest to goodness want to understand your perspective here because I'm paying attention. I'm paying so much attention that I actually want to write this stuff down. That's how important what you have to say to me is. And the third step is to confirm. And confirming means we want to spit back to them what they said. Now, this is a little bit different than the old paraphrasing that we used to be taught. So what you're really saying is, no, no, I don't want to do that. Because if I do that, I run the risk that I've completely missed the point. So I want to go back to my little FIRE model. And what I want to say to them is, okay, I just want to make sure I got this facts as you saw them are this you then interpreted that to mean blah 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 based on that you had the following emotional reaction and because of that you now want this outcome this desired end did I get that
0: right you know it's so good is like even as you're saying this I imagine if someone says something just like outrageous and you like play it back for them They may very well say, you know, I'm sorry, Mark. Never mind. It's fine.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And honestly,
0: that is a huge part of it. And that's where the
1: structure comes from. Because when you spit this back to somebody and you force them to listen, so many people do not listen to the words that come out of their mouth. When you spit it back to them and you're not passing any judgment, you're just restating it with a little bit of structure. Half the time they look at it and they go oh, that doesn't sound good. That's, yeah, no, as you say, I'm sorry. uh, Nope, let me retract, just forget I said anything. And, And that's, it's funny, so much of these difficult conversations are about holding a mirror up to the person who sparked this in the first place. Now, you know, if we have a legit disagreement, maybe about the typos, we disagree on phrasing, whatever. Okay, well, let's just, like adults, come together and hash that out. But if something does something where it's it's nasty or it was emotional and they in the heat of anger they said something bad, when we hold up the mirror, we're essentially saying, "This is what you just said. Is this what you want to go with?" And, and when oftentimes when they look at it, they go, uh, "No, uh, nope. I would rather not have that on the record because I can see that that was just." Uh, bad (laughs) and and just the repeating back solves half the issues we face
0: perfect now mark tell me is there anything else you want to make sure to mention before we shift gears and hear about some of your favorite things
1: the one other thing that i would just share in the context of difficult conversations is whenever you're going into it it is always a good idea to pause for a second and Ask yourself one simple question. What do I really want to accomplish with this? And I'll tell you that a lot of people go into difficult conversations and and what they want to have happen is they want people to apologize. They want people to feel bad for what they said. And I can tell you that in all of the looking at these conversations, all the research I've done on this, that that almost never ends well. That the real goal of a difficult conversation, of a truth talk, is to create some change, to come to some resolution so we can both move forward into a better place. And if my goal is to just make you feel terrible for that thing you said, all that's going to end up is hurt feelings on both sides. Whereas I don't care if you apologize or don't apologize. What I do care is that we're able to move together, move forward together better. And if we can do that, eh, I don't want to make anybody lose faith by having to give an apology because that's just going to make them angry and and drag this thing out. Let's just fix it and life gets better.
0: Okay. Very good. Thank you. Well, so now could you share with us a, a favorite quote, something you find inspiring?
1: You know, there are a number of things that I have found incredibly helpful as going through this. And I should back up for a second because one of the things that one of the books that was an influence on me early on was peter drucker's the effective executive and and this is an old old book this is 40 years and one of the things that came out of this book is that some of the simplest things are the things that make us most successful. Things like, where does my time go? And how am I spending my life? And what am I doing? And uh, who should I be talking to? And when I think about this, sometimes there is a tendency to overcomplicate everything. And honestly, I, I, that's a as a big a problem in difficult conversations as it is anywhere else. And one of the things that we're trying to help people do is essentially simplify it. It's just say, listen, you know what? This doesn't have to be super complicated. If we just focus on some basic issues, if we focus on some simple things, just let's talk about facts. Let's not muddle this up. One of the things that I found is that a lot of people seem to make their career off of making things more complicated than they need to be. And you know what? Honestly, (laughs) if we can avoid doing that, we're going to be in much better shape. So in terms of where some of the inspiration for this, Peter Drucker died years ago, but that was one of the great things he did uh, for anybody that's, we're essentially, we're trying to And have any kind of conversation or be a better person, be a better leader, whatever, is just focus on some of the simple things. So that's a a very long answer (laughs) uh, to your question. But given all of that, one of my favorite quotes is actually not even a leadership quote. So, you know, Peter Drucker has a million and one great concepts, but there's another one that actually comes from Kurt Vonnegut. And he said, I try and get this right. He said, "We are what we pretend to be, so you need to be careful about what you pretend to be." And I I may have missed that slightly, but it, the in essence, it's listen, <laughs> you turn into what you're pretending. So, Be careful about what you're pretending. So going back to the Peter Drucker concept for a second, where you put your time, how you talk to people, all of it ultimately informs who you really are. So if you have jerky conversations, it's not just a jerky conversation. That's actually turning you into a jerk. If you're spending your time all day not actually helping people become better, well, you're turning into somebody Who's not helping other people become better? And this idea that the words that come out of your mouth, they turn you into who you are. The actions you take on a daily basis, they turn you into what you are. I think that the Vonnegut quote is sort of a cautionary message for all of us that at the end of the day, and I've mentioned this with having difficult conversations, if I'm somebody that goes into a tough conversation and I just want to make you feel bad, well, I'm becoming somebody who just makes other people feel bad. If I'm somebody who goes into a conversation to try and make the world better for both of us, well, then I start to turn into that. And these words, these actions, where we spend our time, how we have conversations, all of this ultimately turns us into what we are. And they're not separate things. The words you say and who you are They're not separate. They ultimately become the same thing.
0: Okay, awesome, thank you. And now could you share with us a favorite tool, something that helps you be awesome at your
1: job? So there's a number, but probably the one that is the single most effective, the one that I do no matter what day of the week it is, is one, I don't check my email before I do this. So technology stays off, until I've done this one thing. And the one thing is, I ask myself the question every morning, what do I need to accomplish today for this to be a successful day? And the reason I ask that question is my to-do list can become a mess. But my to-do list is not necessarily a barometer of what drives my success. My success is going to be driven by one or two things. On any given day, there's one or two areas where I can really make a difference. Now, I may do 30 other things, but those are, eh, you know, they're not giant inflection points. They're not bending the curve. They're not making me more or less successful. They're just kind of, you know, checking things off a list. But asking that one question, not only does it help me focus my energy for the day, But I will tell you, if you've ever had that experience of waking up in the morning and the first thought you have is all the work you didn't get done yesterday, and you know how awful that feeling is, I hate that feeling. By asking myself, what's the thing I need to do today for this to be a successful day? I do that one thing, and even if I didn't kill off the rest of my to-do list, I can still go to bed with a feeling of accomplishment that, you know what, I did that one thing today, that I got that done. And that allows me to sleep better at night and wake up in the morning. And my first thought is not, oh, I didn't get so many things done yesterday. Yesterday was such a waste. I don't have that feeling because I know that, yeah, I may have 30 other things I still got to do today, but I did the big one. I did that one thing. And so yesterday was a successful day because of it.
0: Oh, perfect. Thank you. And is there a particular nugget that you share that uh, you tend to hear back often as being super helpful and transformational for folks?
1: One of the big ones actually is the FIRE model. The idea that just strip out the interpretations, reactions, and ends, write it all down. That's fine. Get it out on paper. Make yourself feel better. But then draw a big giant X through it and say, I am not allowed to say that stuff because it is going to cause me problems, it forces us, A, to dial down our conversations, to delayer them, so that anytime you speak, you're speaking factually. And not only does it reduce angst and anger and vitriol in conversations, but from a career perspective, man, it makes you look smart. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> if you're somebody that isn't walking around making harebrained interpretations and saying stupid things because you're forcing yourself to be calmer and more rational and more factual it ends up building up your expert power and you become more of a person that people turn to simply because not only do you sound more intelligent but you end up becoming more intelligent because you're forcing yourself to stay away from all of the stupid brush to judgments that
0: humans generally make. Awesome, thank you. And if folks wanna learn more or get in touch with you, where would you point them?
1: Our website is one big place at leadershipiq.com and there's a section on our website called Quizzes and Research. And there are a whole bunch of free tests and quizzes on this and other leadership topics and a whole bunch of research. I've over a hundred articles there. It's a good source where we've stuffed a lot of tools and expansion on all of these topics we've
0: discussed today. Oh, perfect. Thank you. And do you have a final challenge or call to action you'd issue to folks seeking to be awesome at their jobs?
1: The one big challenge would be identify a conversation that you've been putting off and map it out for yourself. Take what we talked about today. Take that FIRE model. Write down what you want to say to this person And challenge yourself. Listen, I'm not saying you have to do it the day before a major holiday, but force yourself within the next week or two to actually sit down and have that conversation. Pretty much every one of us has a conversation that we've been postponing because we don't feel comfortable that we can pull it off successfully, but we need to. Make yourself have that conversation and simplify it. You know, as I said, keep it simple, just focus on the facts and see if you can't start a dialogue with this person. It doesn't have to be a confrontation, just a conversation about it.
0: Awesome. Well, Mark, thank you so much for taking the time and sharing this wisdom. I wish you tons of luck with all of your conversations, tough and fun and anything in between. Pete, thank you so much. This was a blast. I've been using the Fire Framework repeatedly in terms of delayering things because it's quite common to mistake a reaction for something that happened. And it's it's totally been quite helpful for me in segmenting things. So I encourage you. It's easy to remember. It's useful. It's not sort of a fad acronym that you know. Sometimes uh, some folks are trying too hard to to put out a framework, but this is the real stuff, and I found it useful. I hope you found that and many other of these tidbits super handy. And if you want to access uh, some of that text, you know, copy it, paste it and tweak it and post it on your desk somewhere so you you don't forget it. That's on over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash F256. And if you haven't already, I encourage you to push subscribe. You'll hear from our next guest. It's Tori McKinley. She is a creative maestro who knows a whole lot about design thinking, and she's going to lay out uh, some of those perspectives for us.